0: Today we're going to continue our series in the life of David, pursuing a life uh, after God's own heart, and uh, we've been in this for a, a few weeks. Today we're actually going to be closing out First Samuel, next week we'll go into 2 Samuel. Uh, if you look at David's life, if you put it into three categories, we kind of see his life breaking down like this. The first one is triumph. Uh, that's with him being anointed as king. You see David and Goliath. You see that whole story. You see this uh, all these exploits in military skills. You see this time of triumph. Uh, then in the middle years, which we're in today, it's kind of the years of trials. He is on the run. He's fleeing. Uh, he's hiding in caves. Uh, there's definitely a dark cloud hanging over this period of his life, and that will continue even into next week. Um, but then you see kind of the end of his life, you see the troubles, uh, the troubles, and, and uh, all that comes on his life. He makes some bad decisions a little bit later on, and uh, we see the, how he reaps those troubles. But right now, we're in this time of trials, and it's really uh, kind of a dark time for him. And uh, when, you, when you think about it, you think about all the success in those early years, and Uh, just even as a kid Samuel like Samuel like he's a hall of famer for Israel he's coming to his house and instead of anointing the brothers he finds David he anoints him I mean this is good things are moving up he's in the king's court he's got all these things going for him but then things turn south Turns south quick, and now he is fleeing for his life. He's left his home. He's left his wife. In fact, his wife by this point has now been given to another, and he's hiding in caves with about 600 men. It's tough. Uh, what we see in today's passage is we're going to look and see some interpersonal conflict. We're going to look and see how David handles this kind of conflict, and if you're thinking, "Hey, that sounds very familiar," like last week, you're right. You're right. In fact, there's three chapters right here, all in a row, that are all about this kind of interpersonal conflict. You have chapters 24, where Saul is pursuing David. He wants to take his life. He has. Uh, he, he's hunting him, but then the thing tables turn, and David has this opportunity to get Saul. Well, Saul is using the restroom in a cave, uh, what happens to be the same cave that David's in, and he has an opportunity to take Saul out, but he doesn't. In the next chapter, chapter 25, which Pastor Ray spoke on last week, you see kind of another interpersonal conflict, but this time uh, it's David who is pursuing Nabal. He is, uh, up till this point, kind of a stranger. He's disrespected David, and David is kind of going overboard in this, but fortunately is stopped by Abigail, and uh, he has an ability to calm down, and uh, he lets God just kind of work things out. But there was a whole uh, passage last week about interpersonal conflicts. This one uh, kind of more with a stranger. But now as we come into chapter 6, 26, we see the same kind of thing as 24. It's almost, it's uncanny how similar it is. And I think there's a reason for that. But here it is that uh, Saul is again uh, hunting David. David finds out where he's at. The Lord puts the whole army of 3,000 men to sleep. And David has the opportunity to become king. By taking Saul out in one simple action, everything is ended and he is but again, he doesn't do that. Again, he holds back. As we we look at these chapters on conflict, like we, we gotta look and like, why are they all here? What does it have to say? What are some of the some of the messages? And in one of the real guiding principles is talking about the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that he's gonna work all these things out. The, the message is trusting the Lord, and we will talk about that. There's another uh, section here which just talks about, about how do we handle these conflicts. If you're human and you're in relationship with other people, if you live uh, in a city and you have friends, you will have conflict. It will happen. So how do we as Christians... How do we respond to this conflict in ways that brings about more light than darkness? This world is dark, and if we're not careful, we get caught up in that. But we as Christians, we stand for the light. We stand for the light of Christ, and we have to look and see at how we approach these situations and how we can bring the gospel into it. So today, I want you to think about this. Think about your life and uh, maybe the darkness that is around it. Are there, is there darkness for these dreams that you had that uh, have not come about? It's just like D- David, uh, this dream to be king that has not happened yet. He's waiting and waiting and waiting. Each day seems like it's getting further and further, darker and darker. Are you in a situation like that? Or are you in a situation where the darkness is, is not so much dreams but people, uh, other people in your life? There's a a situation that has risen up. Maybe it's with a friend, Uh, uh, somebody that you have um, you've known for a long time, but now the situation has come about. Now you're frenemies or enemies at worst. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to maybe someone else? Maybe it's at work or in the neighborhood or somebody like that that just they're out to get you. They're trying to make your life miserable and you're struggling. They're antagonistic and they're bothersome. They're critiquing you and judging you at every move. How do you respond to them? Or maybe it's it's not someone in the neighborhood or at work or a friend. Maybe it's someone in your own family that is causing this kind of grief, this turmoil, this stress, this anxiety, this pain. How do you handle that? Or... One last option, maybe it's nobody in particular, but it's just living as a Christian in the society, the society that's becoming more anti-Christian, and the more that we try to, to speak, the more that we're silenced. How do we respond in these situations? How do we respond in a way that glorifies God? Well, this is, this is our desire today. We're gonna look and we're gonna see that, that David has a lot to say on these issues, and in this passage in particular, in uh, 1 Samuel 26, there's, there's a, a whole section of him trusting in the providence of God, but yet also treating men in a way that glorifies God. We're going to look at that today. And so kind of here, the, the main point, what we're looking at here, is when we're in the midst of darkness, when life is getting dark, to resist the temptation to take matters into your own hands, okay, resist that temptation, but trust in God's providence while living out a righteous and faithful life before God. That is our goal today, how we live trusting God's providence and live a righteous and faithful life. So we have two points today, make it real simple. First point is this, that when the darkness is closing in, when things are getting tough, trust in God's providence. Trust in God's providence, that's easy, right? Just a few words, trusting in the lord to take control of things rather than taking things into our own hands rather than taking uh, the bull by the horns and showing our strength we're going to see what it means to trust in the lord that's hard Because you guys have great skills. You have great wit and negotiation skills and your strength and all of this. All of these things uh, make it very easy for us to get what we want. But we see here with David also, great warrior, great gifted man, but holds back, not once, not twice, but three times in letting the Lord work. So we remember what God had said when he was just a little kid, just a little youth, God said that you will be king, but he didn't tell him when that would be or how long that would be. Now David's 10 years, 15 years later in his probably his mid to late 20s. It's a good age to become king. He has a couple opportunities. People around him are saying, just make it happen. Just do it. You're ready for this. See him holding back and continuing to trust the Lord to carry out his will. Let's look at the, the first uh, section here, in 1 Samuel 26, 1 to 6. Let's see how this story unfolds here. It starts with the Zephites. Now, just uh, who are the Zephites? Uh, it doesn't matter so much, but they're people in the hill country, and they're loyal to Saul. We're told twice now. This is the second time the Zephites see David kind of running around the wilderness, and twice they go to King Saul and say, here's your man, we got him for you. So the Zephites, they went to Saul at Gilgaba and said, is not David hiding in the hills of Hilkelah, which faces Gisimone? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph and 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hilcala facing Jesus. But David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was laying inside the camp and the army encamped around him. So picture this, Saul is uh, getting ready. It's probably dusk, it's, it's, maybe it's nighttime. Saul is right in the middle, kind of the, the, the camp of all the troops. There's 3,000 soldiers all surrounding him. So then David asks Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, the son of Zerulah, Job's brother, says, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. And uh, we'll stop right there real quick. It, notice, who did, who did uh, David ask? He asked two people, all right? He said, hey, let's go down to uh, the camp where Saul's at. We're all 3,000 people. Let's go. Who, who wants to come with me? And you see one guy, Abishai, saying, I'll do it. But what about the other guy? You don't hear anything, nothing. Just, he asked him, and it just kind of like, you know, kind of, Fades in the background like, are you crazy? Like three of us versus 3,000 of Israelites' best soldiers? You're nuts. You've lost it. So he kind of backs up, but here David and Abishai are the ones that are going to go. We're going to go down. And Abishai thinking, he must be thinking, like, this is my moment. They're going to write songs about me. Like, I'm, I'm guarding David. I'm taking on 3,000 men. Like, this is great. This is like epic proportions. Dreaming about this, but that dream would never be realized. In verse 7, it says, so David and Abishai went to the army by night And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with just one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, get the spear and the water jug that's near his head and let's go. Ibishai had to be thinking, like, why in the world did we do this? We risked our lives for a spear and a hydro flask? Like, what's, what's up with that? Like, David, you're crazy. We have the opportunity here. God's put them all to sleep. They're in a deep sleep, so we can do this. We make you king right here, right now. Tempting, isn't it? Tempting for David to say, yeah, you're right. God promised me that these guys—they're probably—they could be yelling, and nobody's waking up. There should be guards standing watch, but they're all out. They're all like Nyquil right now. Like this is a moment that only the Lord could bring. But David said, "No, no, no, we're not doing this." He had the opportunity in that cave, right in chapter twenty-four. It might have been some time before that, and I always wonder. Did David regret not taking him when he had the opportunity? I mean, he's in a cave. He has all his men. There's no way he's going to lose this. Saul's undefended. Like, did he ever regret and say, you know, gosh, I should have done that. It would have saved every, you know, lots of people, lots of lives. I should have just moved this thing along. I'm sick of, tired of hiding in caves. I always wonder that. But this passage tells us that no. He didn't regret that. He never said, You know, I should have done that, or else he would have said, Ah, finally, the Lord brought him back. I have a second opportunity. But he didn't. He said, I am not doing that. He says, Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And that's what it really comes down to. David was a warrior they songs we know we know that he's he's he knows how to kill he knows that, we know he's a warrior he's done this many many times but here's what he's never done he's never laid a hand on an israelite he's only put his hand on enemies of the lord the philistines and the amorites and others that had invaded israel but he's never touched an Israelite, and he, he almost did with Abner, he, or uh, with Nabal. He almost did, but he was stopped from that. He was able to uh, get, uh, cool down and, and get, regain, you know, his composure. But he never would do that. And It was important for him. And did, did you hear what he said, how he trusted in the Lord's providence? He says, no, we're not going to do anything. I'm going to let the Lord deal with this. You know, the Lord will, will take care of him. I mean, maybe he'll die of natural causes or a sickness or something like that. Maybe he'll die in battle. It doesn't matter. I'm not gonna do it. We're gonna show grace. We're gonna restrain. We're gonna trust in the Lord to take care of this. It's hard to trust, isn't it? We in America are, uh, are uh, we struggle with trust. There's a lot of things around us. Uh, a lot of people break trust. It takes a lot to earn trust, and we get tired of that. I mean, we have people we trust, but mostly we trust ourselves. There's uh, they do reports like this every year. You know, last year 2018, they they talked about in America who uh, we find the least trusting, and here's the list: Congress, probably not a big surprise, right? We don't trust Congress. Organized labor big business public schools newspapers television news the criminal justice system news on the internet and hmos interesting right i'm just happy churches aren't on that list i think we have been before pastors and churches so oh, hopefully we're gaining trust we're moving up but you understand we we read those things and you're like yeah you're right it's hard for me to trust you know, organizations and big things, it's hard for me to trust other people. And so then when we say, hey, trust the Lord, just trust God, and, and it's hard for us. How do we do that? How do we trust God? Probably you can answer this lots of ways. I know there's books on this and blogs, but I would say, real simply, the same way that we would trust someone else. If you're going to um, trust someone, here's, there's a couple things that need to happen. One is you need to know that person really cares for you. That they they know who you are, they've taken time to listen to you, they love you, they care for you. You know that their heart is for you. Right? They've heard your story, they know, you know, they know you, they know all your stuff, and they still care for you, they still wanna show you love. So, first there's that aspect, kind of this intimacy. But there's another part, too, that when you trust someone, you gotta know that they're not gonna use that information for evil or for bad that the power that they have whatever amount of power that is that they're going to use it for good they're not going to use it against you or for your ill knowing that someone loves you cares for you that they're going to protect you that's how you build trust that's just two simple things but might we say the same about god does he know you does he have compassion for you does he love you Does he know all your stuff and all your junk and still love you? Yeah, absolutely. There's all kinds of compassion and mercy and grace for you. But also, can he use his power for good? Will he use his sovereign power to protect you and care for you? I don't mean that you won't experience some tough trials. I mean, we learn through trials. But in the midst of that trials, will he be there with you? watching over you, I would say yes, that He both knows you, loves you, and has power over you to protect you. So friends, I would encourage you to learn that. Learn how to put your trust in the Lord. Know that He's got you. We so often want to take things into our own hands. One, because it's faster that way. The Lord's timeline, I mean, nine times out of ten is way slower than my timeline, isn't it? And that's what I've learned as, as a Christian for so many years, that God's speed is way slower. Every once in a while it surprises you and he speeds it up real fast. But most of the time we have to wait. And we don't like to wait. But we can trust him. Because he knows you, he loves you, and he's got you. Timeline is right and perfect. Just allow him to move. I mean, David had to wait a long time to be king. He had to wait a long time for God's purpose to come, but he trusted in him the whole time, never taking things into his own hands, letting the Lord move in his time. That's the first thing, trusting in God's power and his providence and sovereignty to work things out in life. Being able to let go and let him move at his proper time. So many times I think we think if we let go of something that it falls to the ground and drops and breaks, but let us always remember when we let go, God's still holding it. God is still holding it. He's going to take care of things and he's going to take care of David in his time. So that's the first thing. Second thing, the second point is simply this that we want to let the light shine in the, in the darkness. And how do we do that? By living righteously, by remaining faithful to God's promise. Right? In times of conflict, when it's tough, when it's hard, when it's dark, we're going to let the light shine by living righteously and faithfully before God and before man. And this is tough too. We have to kind of learn a new skill set, because what we've learned most likely from our friends, from grade school, from junior high, from high school, and on and into our adulthood, we find out that when someone hurts you, you hurt them back, all right? When someone threatens you, you stand up taller, you stand up stronger, you put your chest out just a little bit. We've learned how to do this. We know how to pick fights. We know how to hit, take cheap shots, blame people or manipulate them or shame them. We know how to do that really well because our world has taught us that. But is that how we're supposed to live as Christians? Is that how we are to live in the light? Is that how we are to live as we follow Jesus Christ? Well, it's not, obviously. So how do we learn a new way of interacting with conflict? How do we learn how to handle this interpersonal conflict in ways that that glorifies God, that brings light into it? Well, right here, David shows us some really good things. And if you're the note taker, I'd encourage you to do it. There's about five or six things that we see David doing here that we can learn from him and we can apply that in any context. Anytime that we're in some difficult situation with another person, a family member, a friend, somebody in the church or outside the church, we have some tools to know how to handle that. And so here I'm going to read some things. These are, I'm going to read mostly from chapter 26, but if you are a student and you want to look at both of these, you'll find almost the identical thing in chapter 24, which shows that it's not a one-time fluke. It's a a lifestyle that he learned how to live with conflict. But here's the first thing that we see, that he learns how to practice restraint. Practice restraint. In times of conflict, we want to bring out the guns. We want to fight back. But here, what we learn from David is to practice restraint. Here's what it says. It says, but David said to Abashai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him and his time will come. He says, but the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on him. Now get the spear, the water, and let's go. You see this restraint where he had the opportunity. He had people. He had everything in his favor. He had the numbers. He had everything. He says, I'm holding back. I'm going to hold back. Same thing when he was in the cave right there. He had the numbers. He had the advantage. He had everything, but he held back he practiced restraint I don't know if he was uh, the first person to coin this Christian phrase but it's kind of the whole idea of just let go and let God right you've heard that before let go and let God and some people hear that and they say oh it's it's kind of a, a weak phrase like you're you're just showing weakness here no, you're, you know, you don't have the courage or the strength to do it yourself, so you're just going to call on this all-powerful God that let him do it. But really, we see we see his strength here. We see this restraint that, that comes, and it is hard to do that. But being able to hold back and say, I know I can. I know it's in my power, but I'm not going to lay a finger on the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to lay a finger on someone who... Uh, I've considered a friend or who is in Christ. We're not going to do that. We're going to hold back. Practice restraint. The second thing we see in verse 17 is to showing appropriate respect. Show appropriate respect. He says, why is the Lord my king pursuing his servant? Uh, He says the same thing in 24, and he even bows down at that point. But here he is saying, "Uh, Saul, you're not worthy of respect in how you've treated me. You've been chasing me. You've been throwing spears at me my whole life. You've been saying all kinds of bad things about me. But nevertheless, I'm going to show respect. Because I think that's the right thing to do. Maybe he heard the, the... The Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment in his head, saying, honor your father and mother, and remembering that this is his father-in-law through marriage. Okay, I'm going to honor him. Maybe, you know, he could just kind of imagine the words later on that that Paul would say and that Peter would say when they talk about this, saying, give everyone what you own. If it's respect, respect. If it's honor, give them honor. In 1 Peter 2.17 He says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. And then honor the emperor. We can read by that quickly. But if we remember what had been happening here, the emperor is trying to kill Christians. (laughs) And he's still saying, but still, nevertheless, he's in a position, honor him. Oh, that's hard. You talk about strength. That takes strength. Saul, you have not done anything you earn this respect, but nevertheless, I'm going to give it to you. Show restraint, give respect. He keeps going, and he says the third thing is he makes the kindest assumption about Saul. He make the kindest assumption. Here's what he says. He's basically saying, if this is from God, if this is from God, if you're sent by God, then here, here I am. Get me. Take me out. But if this is from people feeding you lies, then they should be cursed. He, he's basically, he could have said, Saul, you know better. You're, you're just a bad, bad person. and You're doing a bad, bad thing. But instead, he just says, hey, I don't know what's gone through your head. I don't know what you've heard, but I think people have been feeding you lies. I, I think you've just been been tricked by them. So he makes this kind of assumption, instead of calling him a bad evil person and you're wicked and nasty and no good I'm going to keep my distance he just says I'm sure there's a mistake here I'm sure that you just heard some things about me that are that I'd like to clear up and in our own conflict that's a hard thing to do right don't we just we just go at someone they offend us we go right back at them and we'll say horrible things about them but instead it's better just to step back and say just from your perspective what are you what are you hearing how are you perceiving this you know how did how did you get to this point let's learn from each other he does that by making that kind assumption here's another thing he does and uh this is powerful he demonstrates grace he demonstrates grace After he gets the spear, he kind of goes up a good distance away, goes up into the hills, stands far away, calls out to them, calls out to Abner first and gets the whole attention of everybody and then gets Saul's attention. And he says, Saul, hey, here's the deal. Where's your spear right now? Look around you. You don't see it. It's because I have it. Because I was right there. I got it. I could have taken you out. But I'm going to show grace. What you deserve is probably some justice, all right? You have been acting poorly. You deserve justice, but I'm going to show you grace. If we went by the Old Testament law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, then when you throw the spear at me, I have the right to throw a spear at you. If, if we go by that law, then I come out even. I, I can wash my hands from it, saying, you attack me, I attack you. But that law is about restraint as well. If you go back and see that Old Testament law, it's about restraint, saying, hey, when someone goes and takes out your eye, don't go after both of their eyes, both of their ears, their nose, and their mouth. It's saying, no, keep it the same. He threw a spirit at you, but he missed. So don't go for him. Hold back. We as Americans, we love justice, right? I mean, it's part of our nation was founded on this, and justice for all. We love to see justice when we're wronged. When we're wronged and someone hurts us, we want to call on justice. So they'll get what they deserve. But when we do something wrong, when we hurt someone, what do we ask for? We don't ask for justice. We ask, grace, can I have mercy? Please give me another chance. Why is it that we love, you know, mercy and, and grace when it's on us, but we want justice on somebody else? He shows us here that we don't have I mean we'll, we love justice in our nation right? I, I'm all for that let the governing authorities take care of that but when it comes to us when it comes to relationships let's fall on grace let's fall on that side let grace rule he does one more thing here. He says that he appeals to the relationship at its highest point. This one's actually from chapter 24 in, in verse 11 when he calls Saul his father. He said, hey, father. He says, I'm your son. There's this father and son relationship there going on. But what he's doing is he's not calling him you know, king. He's not calling him you know, this evil tyrant or anything like that. He's, he's going back to those old days when there was fondness, when there was love, when there was care. He's calling on those old, you know, barbecues, you know, or the times that the family was together singing and dancing and laughing. He's saying, that's what I'm gonna go back to. That's what I'm gonna hold on to. It'd be the same thing for us here when we have, uh, when someone offends us or when we're in some kind of a conflict to go back and say, brother or sister in Christ, I remember the time that we went to the retreat and we prayed together. We prayed for our families. I remember when our kids played together. I remember those, the times that, that we, we, we played together, you know, we had picnics together, or whatever. That's what I'm calling, and I know we can get back to that. We can Get back to those moments where there was love. We had care for each other. So he's, he appeals to that relationship with hope for a future. And the last thing we see here is that he's going to do good without expecting anything in return. Or he's, in the same way, he's going to do good knowing that some people will never change. This is what Pastor Ray spoke on last week, remember? Oh, I think that was his first point, that some people will just never change. And here, David is, is, he's calling to him, he's talking to him, he's high up in the mountains, he's calling out to, to King Saul, and he says, here's this king's spear. He says, let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and their faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I value your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. And Saul said to David, may you be blessed. David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So here David finally surrenders the spear, saying, I don't want it. I'm giving it back to you. I'm laying these things aside. We're forgetting this. We're going to move on. Saul apologizes. Maybe he even cried. Maybe he even said he's sorry. But here's what we see. Saul never changed. This would be the last time that they talk together. This would be their last conversation. But in the very next verse in chapter 27, David says, you know what? He's gonna come after me again. I gotta get out of here. He flees. He gets out of Israel into the Philistine country. But he knows, I'm gonna do good even though this person may never change. And that's okay. Because I'm gonna live righteously and live faithfully before men and before God. We're gonna let God take care of the rest. You guys, this is hard. It's not easy. I think it'd probably just be easier just to do what the world does, fight back, say a few things, belittle someone, shame them, and move on. So I'm not gonna to talk to you again ever. But David does something very different. He shows compassion and shows grace and looks for a hopeful future. It's going to do good no matter what happens that's how David dealt with conflict that's the way that you and I can deal with this it's going to happen but trusting in God and his providence and his power and his care and then just say I'm going to live right and we're going to let things fall down where they fall down the Lord will take care of this Next week, we're going to be in second Samuel, chapter one. And at the beginning of second chapter, Samuel one or second Samuel, chapter one, it's uh, where we find out that King Saul had been killed. He's actually killed in chapter 31. But it happens exactly like David said, remember, he's like, I'm not going to touch him, but the Lord will strike him down. He'll die on his own or he'll die in battle. And that's what happened. He died in battle. We also saw that last week with Nabal. David said, All right, I'm going to give up. I'm just going to let things go. And it was 10 days later that Nabal died. David didn't have to do anything. I can't guarantee it will always happen like that. And I don't want your enemies to die 10 days later. (laughs) Right? But it's just that that sense of, of having trust in God, saying, You're going to take care of it. It might happen the next day. It might happen 10 days later. It might happen a year and a half, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm going to leave it into your hands. I'm going to live righteously. David had an opportunity to kill a king and didn't. Interesting, I was thinking this week in remembering about another Christian, a pastor uh, who was also a spy back in Nazi Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a theologian and pastor, uh, was also um, conflicted about what was happening in Germany, what Hitler was doing, what the Third Reich was doing, he vowed that day that if he had the opportunity, he would take Hitler out. He became part of this underground movement that would try to uh, try to kill Hitler. They tried three times, two times. The bombs didn't go off. Another time it went off, but just before it went off, it was moved just a little further away from Hitler. Four people died, but Hitler survived. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was put in prison for what he did and is part of that. But here's what he says, and I just bring this up because it shows both sides of it. It shows that there's tension. But he says, who stands fast? Only the man whose final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom or virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all this when he's called to obedient and reasonable action and faith and exclusive allegiance to God the responsible man who tries to make his whole life an answer to the question and call of God. These are not easy answers, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, I see evil, and I'm going to do what I can to stop it, and I'm going to do it right with a clear conscience before the Lord. I'll take responsibility. It doesn't matter, but I'm going to, I'm, I can't let this happen. David on the other side Said, I'm just going to let this thing go. We're just going to see. Let the Lord do it. What's the right response? I don't know, but here's here's what I'm I'm pretty sure. I don't think any of you are going to have to struggle with that. I don't think any of you are going to have this moral dilemma. Do I take out a world leader or not? Right? What's the Christian thing to do? But here's what I do know. We do have interpersonal conflict. We do have times where we'll be offended when we're going to be hurt by others. And I'm just saying there's a better way to deal with it than what the world has to offer. We see from David, we see through scripture. that One, we can trust the Lord, that he is in this, he's got it, that we don't have to do it on our own. We can trust him and then we can go forth and live a righteous, a holy, and a faithful life before the Lord. I believe that's what he's calling us to. I think that is what Christ would want for us. And as Christians, we've gotta live in a way that baffles the world. That's totally different. I'm sure David baffled many. And my hope is that we would baffle them too. We'd baffle them with grace, with love, with righteousness. Amen? All right.